Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. Today, we're going to be talking to Bob Meese, Chief Revenue Officer at Duolingo in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're going to be talking to Bob about his experience at Google and hypergrowth as head of business development for Google Play, and then what led to his decision to come back to his home state of Pennsylvania as a boomerang to work at Duolingo. Finally, we're going to talk about elements of hypergrowth company building in the Midwest, such as fast experimentation, the best business models for monetizing a product, the use of OKRs, and what it means to have great employee retention in a place like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Please enjoy this conversation with Bob Meese. All right. So today I have with me Bob Meese, who's the Chief Revenue Officer at Duolingo, the world's most popular way to learn a language, where Bob's responsible for driving the company's revenue growth. Their run rate has increased from a million to over 100 million during Bob's time at Duolingo, which is amazing. The company's raised, I think, nearly $150 million in venture capital from Kleiner Perkins and Union Square, NEA, Drive Capital, General Attic, Ashton Kutcher, Tim Ferriss. Uh, so all sorts of great names. Prior to Duolingo, which is based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Bob spent eight years with Google as head of game business development for Google Play and as principal in the new business development group. So Bob has his MBA from MIT and degrees in economics and computer science from Penn. So welcome, Bob. Thank you very much, Tim. Happy to be here. I think there's so much to learn from your experience personally and Duolingo, but let's start on the personal side. Like, uh, tell us, you know, where did you grow up and and give us a sense for the journey you've been on personally. Sure, yeah. So I'm, I'm here now in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with, with Duolingo. That's where my journey begins as well, too. And so I'm originally from, from Pittsburgh, so born and raised in, in Pittsburgh here. And then, you know, took off for, for, for Penn, as you mentioned, in, in college. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm now back to where I started. And so it's, it's been a, a fun homecoming back to, back to Pittsburgh. You are what we call a boomerang. Yes. You experienced uh, a school on the East Coast. And uh, how did you find your way to Google? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me to... I, I knew from an early age that I wanted to spend my career in tech. And, and you know, now here in 2020, it's like with tech is all over everything. Maybe that's more obvious, but, but in like the mid 90s, that was probably a little you know, less, less typical. It, it, it was a heady time too. Like the, the month I started college was when Netscape IPO'd. And so like st- stuff was going on, right? So it was an interesting time to, to be doing all of this, but but for, for me, from the early days, you know, in your intro, you mentioned I was a combo of, of econ and computer science. And so for, for myself, kind of generally, I saw myself being a business person for technology companies. I, I, uh, I you know, I, I, I did get a CS degree, but I should not be an engineer right now, right? That's like, a, it, it, it's a competence I have, but, but when I see the, the best engineers that, that we have here at Duolingo, it's like, I'm like, I could not do that, right? So that is, but, but for, for me, I, I, I knew I wanted to spend my career in, in, in tech. And, and so, you know, it, it started with, with Penn and, and doing that degree program. And then during my early career, I was doing more service jobs. And so it was consulting, but for firms that were just focused on tech clients. And then I did some investing early on in my career too. And the, the earlier part of my career was, was done in Boston. 
but I, you know, Silicon Valley was, was calling, right? And so that was to, to your question around how to find my way to, to, to Google. That was just kind of building up to that. It's, it's a great company and um, was really excited when I got that opportunity to join. At the time was the idea of getting involved in technology industry in Pittsburgh, even on your radar? At the- it, it, it was. Yeah, I actually, um, because for me, I, you know, it was college in Philadelphia and then I moved to Boston right after college. And uh, I actually, it was, you know, then I mentioned I, I started college when Netscape IPO'd. I, I graduated in 2000. The, the, the bust that happened, actually the first company that I worked for coming out of, out of college went, uh, went out of business. So I, actually, I, I spent a fair amount of time looking at Pittsburgh at that time because that was where I was from. And it's like when I, I had a lot of spare time to cut, figure out my next move. And, and that, that's actually how. I connected into some of the folks that I remain connected to today of, you know, Dave Mawinney and Sean Amorati and, and just re- really got to understand that there were some like amazingly impressive people who are here in Pittsburgh. But unfortunately for me at that time, there just wasn't, I mean, one, one is like nothing was growing, right? It was like a- after that bust that happened, it was just really hard to find a- any kind of growth opportunities. But for, for me at that time, I, I definitely looked for a number of months, but there just wasn't the right opportunity for me in Pittsburgh at that time. So what did you learn at your time at Google that you pulled with you today or brought back with you? So it is, it's a couple of things. One is Google has, has managed to get hiring right for, for sure, right? Where it's, it is an amazingly impressive group of people, but also there's, you know, there, there, there's the culture within the company that's well known too. And so it's, it, it's not just people who are amazingly impressive but people you want to spend time with and who are generally nice people as well too, such that the group dynamic is, is, is positive and additive rather than being like hyper competitive. Right. And so that, that is definitely a piece too, is the importance of people. And sometimes it means having the role go unfilled or having just the process of bringing new people on go more slowly than you like, but just that, you know, it, it, it's worth waiting to get the right people in, into the right seats. And so that, that's one. And then the, the second part really is around the, the hyper growth that I experienced during the second half of my time at Google, where I was a, a core member of the, the Google Play team, leading the games team there, riding an amazing growth curve in the relatively early days of the Android platform evolution. And just seeing what, whenever things are growing at kind of a, a crazy clip and just kind of holding on and, and, and trying to, you know, just keep, keep the team together while, while you're experiencing this, this wave that's kind of coming behind you. It's, it can be enormously fun, uh, but, it, it, you know, it, as you go through it, it's, it's impossible to get everything right when you're going through it. And so there it's, you get some things right, but there's other parts where you're like, gosh, I wish I'd done this a little bit differently. So that, yeah, that hyper growth is really cool. Yeah, I've, I've observed whether you're going from zero to 10 million in revenue or you're going from 100 million to a billion, Growth is growth, right? And it's often some bit of managed chaos. Were there people at Google at the time that you looked to that, that, that helped you or guided you or gave you mentorship to help you kind of get clarity in all that chaos? There, there were, yeah, I mean, we were, we were fortunate for within Android because that, that, was, that was an incredible team where, I mean, they... A lot of the core people uh, were from the really, very early days, right? Like it, Andy was, Andy Rubin was still there in the early days that I was there. And one of the key engineering leaders that we work with at Play was one of the first 10 employees at, at Android pre-acquisition. And so there, there were people 
who had seen it from the, the, the earliest days of the genesis of that platform. And so there, when I joined in Google Play is, I don't know, a hundred some people, and we had accomplished a pretty impressive run rate, they had gone from nothing to that, right? And, and managed to keep it together and, and, and there too. When, when you're building a platform like Android, it's the biggest computing platform ever, full stop, right? It's, it, it's kind of nuts, right? And so just the, the people who have thought on, on that scale and the, the trade-offs that they're making in terms of how, how do you create an environment or a platform where application and game developers all across the world are able to, to, to create an opportunity for themselves and their employees? Um, and how do you balance that with um, you know, the, the, the original openness of, of Android? And it, Android's always been a great platform for tech geeks, but, but there for the, for the average user in the early days of Android, it was like, it, it, was, it was pretty hard, right? So a lot of different considerations. And you're, one of the things too is like, you're not gonna get everything right, but I, I really learned prioritization. I really just like drilled in prioritization there where there was basically for me, I, I changed the way I did email after that time because I basically came to the realization that I could, I, I received so many emails that I could have spent all day doing email and not finish. I, I took a very different approach to prioritization on the play team and then subsequently than I did before that time. That's a great point. Sort of like getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. The, the way, real way to learn that is to be inundated with work. I mean, you can talk about it theoretically, but until you have to survive it, you really don't know how to manage it. Yes. Yeah. Your, 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 your habits change very quickly or you won't survive that environment. So tell us more about how you connected to Duolingo and the founders, Luis and Severin, Severin Hacker, which is like got to be one of the greatest tech founder names ever. Give us some background yeah, I, on how that connection happened. Sure, sure. So is, as I mentioned, I had, I had you know, built these roots in the Pittsburgh tech community from the, the early aughts, right? Like right after 2000. I'd come back to Pittsburgh. I, I still have family here. I've, I've had family. And so for the eight years that I was in California at Google, I'd come back to Pittsburgh a couple times a year and just stay connected to folks. And for, for me, it was in 2016, where th there it was actually the, the genesis was family vacation. And this is, I, I might spend vacation a little bit differently than some other folks, but it was in the summertime there. And I, it, it was a really good eight year run at, at Google. But I, I told my wife like, hey, like, it, it, it's it's interesting. Like Pittsburgh has really come a long way since since we grew up here, and I, I wanted to really just like take a concerted push for for a week, talk to some of the the smarter people that I that I knew here who were better connected, and say said like what's interesting. Mm -hmm. And what one of the people the, the person who made the, the connection for, for me to Luis and Severin was uh, was Andrew Moore, who he um, he's held a couple different roles. He's he's been and executive leadership roles at Google. He was the Dean of Computer Science. At the time he connected me with them uh, at Carnegie Mellon. And then he's, he's subsequently gone back to, to Google. But there I, um, in 2016, I, I just reconnected with him and said, hey, what's, what's interesting? And, and he introduced me to, to Luis and Severin. And uh, it was really just, it, it, was, it was a fit right away where for, for me, it was just the right company in the right role at the right time. Where, How far along were they at the time? So, so there, they had they had raised a bunch of money. There, I mean, Luis too has done recaptcha. So he's he's like right. clearly a, a proven entrepreneur, right? He so he, both of these these guys are just enormously impressive, and, and Luis in particular at, time, at that time had had been quite successful. But Duolingo at, at that time was a, a really strong technical team. 
And so at the time that I joined, it was maybe 65 or 70 people. And so really strong team, especially on the engineering side. It was an amazing product, right? The, the core product very clearly had product market fit as expressed by the, the number of people in the world who were using it. And so a really big audience of people who were using the product, but that, that and, and had raised money from, as you mentioned earlier, just some really impressive investors. So had done like a number of, of rounds before I, I joined. Um, Luis is an amazing fundraiser and an amazing leader of companies. But at the time that I joined, the, the key problem to be solved was monetization where as much as the company had succeeded across a lot of other dimensions, monetization was something where, and in some ways the company hadn't really applied itself to like, gosh, we really got to figure this out. Until that part, it had been focused around user growth, but it, it, it did in a way have an almost unique challenge with regards to monetization where Duolingo is very mission focused. And the, the mission of the company is providing access to language education and so that there, there's a, this commitment to have a really high quality free product. There, there's this balance of fulfilling the mission, having this real high quality free product and like, okay, then how do you also build a really big business is, is part of this as well too. And so that, that was, that, that was like a, a really big challenge at that time. And that, that was something that, um, that, that I came in to help them with. Side note on the languages, you have some real interesting languages, real and not real. Is that right? So, so, I mean, they're all real. Some of them are constructed, right? So, which is maybe what you're referring to with, with you know, Klingon and High Valerian and even uh, Esperanto and some others too, right? So, so yeah, there's, there, there's many, many languages. You know, the most popular kind of, of course, is, is English because there, there's, outside of the United States, we, we may not realize the importance of learning English and how much that can change and transform somebody's life. But in different parts of the world, language means different things. And there, there's a number of language enthusiasts who, yeah, I mean, you, you may engage more with Game of Thrones by learning High Valerian. That, that extends to other things, though, too, where, I mean, people, wow. um, a, you know, anime, there's a lot of people who are learning Japanese to, to get more into manga and anime. There's people who are really into K-pop and so they're learning Korean. And so there, there's, there's so many different reasons and, 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 and motivations for people to learn languages. It's really compelling. That's really fun. So back to the business model at the time. So it sounds like it, it, you, you know, company a great product market fit, but there were still question marks on the business model. Sure. How can you talk about that journey a little bit in terms of what you tried and did the first thing work, you know, right away? And how did you think about navigating that? How long did it take before you came up with the business model you have today? Great, great questions. And so there, just one last point in terms of the environment that I had entered into. And so in terms of the state when I arrived, there was a question at a high level in terms of would Duolingo choose to monetize in a more product-centric way such that we would start to actually make money from the core learning app, which we had resisted doing to that point? Or would we take more of like an enterprise, corporate, build a sales force kind of approach? And so that, that, that was like an active debate at the board level before I joined. And the, the decision, the direction that the company was going was to monetize in a more product-centric way. And so that was, that, that was the, the general guidance. And that's part of why somebody like me was attractive because th that's a lot of what I'd done at, at Google. We're working very closely with very technical teams in product and engineering and building a business around that. I'm, I'm not somebody who's going to hire a thousand-person sales force. If they had gone that way, they would have found somebody else. But that, that was the, the, the focus. And for, for me, too... One thing that gave me the conviction to 
move back across the country and come to Pittsburgh and move my family was I was just trying to figure out what what does Luis want this to become? And there it was immediately clear to me that he was totally serious about the mission and that that was something that was not going to change for him, that access to language education was just super important to him at a personal level. But that also for him, success of Duolingo meant that it would also become a very successful company financially from a business perspective as well. And so I, I was like, all right, we're, we're, we're at least going to try, right? So we, we have a general plan towards monetizing the product and like, this is really important for the company. And so that was, that was kind of the basis of like, okay, I'm in. And so from, from there, w- within that, I, I, as we talked about, I, I had spent time in, in gaming and Duolingo is not a game, but it's game-like. And more than that, there's some principles in terms of how game is monetized that are really instructive for how we wanted to build the monetization engine for Duolingo. And there, when you, when you look, especially at these free-to-play games, either mobile or online, they have a massive audience. And so there's tens and even hundreds of millions of people who are playing some of these games. And they, they build like a really big business in many cases as well. But only in many cases, a single digit percentage of the players actually pay. And so that was something that we were looking for as well. So, so for us to, to find a, a scenario for Duolingo where we could have this audience that's, you know, at the time that I joined was measured in, in tens of millions of people who are using Duolingo every single month. And so there's this really big audience that can be a successful business and that um, only a small percentage of people pay. And so for us, we started testing across advertising and in-app purchases and subscriptions. And we, we just started testing. And so there's this really great culture of rapid experimentation and A-B testing where the, the, the company really honed that over time and directed that towards user growth. And one of the observations was try to just use that and redirect that towards monetization. I, I find that, as you know, with Refinery Ventures, yeah, I focus on what I call early scale companies where there's some product market fit, but they, the scaling really hasn't been figured out yet. Very rarely, it seems, do people figure out how to scale something the right way the first time. And that it, it really is about fast experimentation. I assume you, you probably learned some of those techniques at Google. Yes, yeah, that, that was it, fast experimentation, but, but it, it, is, it is a little bit different too. Because I mean, Google, at the time that I joined Duolingo, I mean, we were probably gonna survive, but it wasn't, it wasn't a given. In the case of Google, you can you can you can kind of afford to think on like a multi-decade. You know, so, so there, there's there is, and in, in part for me, I sought out the more intense environments at Google as well too. Like the Android team definitely had a reputation for being kind of crazy aggressive, especially for something that touches hardware. Right, the the, the things that we were changing right before the launch of new devices was kind of nuts. And so I I I, I definitely saw that too. But it, but it is a little bit different in terms of the approach to experimentation and testing. At Duolingo, one of the things that, that we think about is we, we really try to test everything. So, so one of the things is every single feature that goes into Duolingo starts first as an A-B test. And so, so there, so, you know, whether it's doing simple things like changing the color of a button or like changing the text that you see to adding a whole new feature or totally redesigning our app, um, all of that starts is an A-B test where we test the way that the app currently is with the new design or the new feature that we have, and, and we know the difference. And so there, that can be really powerful, but that also can sometimes lead us to, to focus on things that are smaller and more measurable. I think we've found a good balance of 
taking bigger risks that just need to be gut calls at a certain level and in doing that, you know, not every day, but when it's, when it's time to take these bigger risks, it certainly helps that Luis is the founder is still running the company too. And so just moral authority to do, do things just on, on, on gut on occasion is, is a good thing. But yeah, as we think about experimentation and testing, I think overall it's really healthy, but, but sometimes you're like, gosh, are we being big enough or bold enough? And, and we are at times, but I think we probably wish we were doing that a little bit more often. I'm curious, at the risk of asking a question that I don't know the answer to, do you guys use OKRs at Duolingo? Yes. Yeah, no, that's that, that that's very solidly a part of the culture of the company. So that was from the beginning, I assume, probably since... Yeah, the, the, the religion around OKRs, that and different companies use them different ways, but but they're mm-hmm. just, you know, the, the focus just on having a plan and making it very measurable is very important. And then also the principle, principle around making it appropriately ambitious. Too, right that's that that is a, a core part of what we do at Duolingo. yeah that's I see that a lot where people end up using okrs to measure process metrics because that's what they know how to measure but don't really stretch enough to to think of it as ambitious goals uh, over yeah. whether it's over a quarter or over a year that learning and and those the expectations that you had and some of the founding team had, how do you see that in terms of the people you hire in the Pittsburgh area? Like how many people in the Pittsburgh area that you hire have ever been in a hypergrowth situation before? Relatively few. We are, we are still very much a Pittsburgh-centric company. We, we have opened other offices in the, the last couple of years. And so at the moment, we, we have an additional presence in New York City, Seattle, and Beijing. But it, it, at this moment, still 80% or more of the employees are in Pittsburgh. For our, our people in Pittsburgh and for many people globally, the, the core demographic for us is a lot of people who are straight out of school. And whether that be undergrad or grad school, people who are amazingly smart, amazingly impressive, diverse in, in like a, a lot of other ways too. I mean, for, for us, we're a language learning company. And so as we think about hiring into Pittsburgh, it's super important that, that we're hiring people who have grown up outside of the United States or people with just different backgrounds, different uh, language skills mm-hmm. as well too. And so that, that's a really important part. In terms of your question around folks that have seen rapid scaling, a, a number of the executives on the team and, and senior people have had those experiences and people at some really great companies. But for like the, the, the core people that we're bringing in, um, a, a lot of them are still pretty, pretty early in their career where they've done some impressive things, but they, they probably aren't, aren't prepared for like a crazy hyperscale growth. Are there things you do to help people get acclimated to that? Are there uh, things that you've had to do from a, a training standpoint at all that are unique? For, for us, there's there's a couple of things. Something that we've realized increasingly over the last year or so has, has been alignment with the overall company goals. Because there, especially as somebody's coming in and just helping them understand how the work that they're doing on a daily and quarterly and annual basis, like how that's connecting back to what's most important for the company both in terms of what the company is trying to accomplish in that time period. And, and then just why it is that we do the things we do. But we, you know, I, we, we say and talk about our mission that, you know, why is that mission important, right? So, so the, the more that we can help people connect into that very high level company goals and objectives, that's, that's super important. And, and then the other part is basically just like the habits or routines on a daily basis. And so there, the other thing is, with our approach to product development, we're actually launching a new version of our Android and iOS apps every single week. That just like builds in these repetitions. It can help simplify, right? Because 
you have these really big goals and you're like, gosh, what can I accomplish over the next quarter or year? But then you, you, you have like many, many short-term goals as well too and short-term deadlines. And that just helps bring discipline to breaking down bigger problems into manageable chunks. When you look at top, when you look at startups in Silicon Valley and top schools they come from, the first school outside of California-based uh, universities is Carnegie Mellon. I, I don't understand why there aren't more Duolingo success stories actually in Pittsburgh. I think there's huge opportunity there. So let's kind of shift to that in terms of the ecosystem. What what are you seeing happening there? And in what ways do you think have you been able to help uh, other startups in the Pittsburgh area? It, it, it's a great point, Tim. And, and just looking at the, the broader uh, Pittsburgh tech ecosystem. And, and for me too, the, the, the foundation is Carnegie Mellon where it's, it, it's an enormous asset to, to have one of the top five worldwide computer science schools right here locally, right? That is a magnet for bringing super impressive people into the region. It, I mean, you can't overstate that, right? It, it, it's something where just people and talent is, is so important. And you know, both of our co-founders are immigrants who came to Pittsburgh for CMU. And so that, there it's, it's, that was the, the reason why we attracted these people. I mean, that, there are folks like myself who are boomerangs, but if, if if we just constrain the population of Pittsburgh tech employees, the people who are from here coming back, it's like, that's that's never gonna work. We, we need to find talent attractors and, and Carnegie Mellon is, is definitely the top one for us. And so that's a great foundation. In terms of what, what Duolingo can do, uh, I'm starting to, to branch out a little bit more. So, so I mean, I, I mentioned I've been back for about four years. For, for the first while, I was not visible at all in the broader tech ecosystem here in Pittsburgh because I, I, I just I told other people I, I can be most helpful to you by helping Duolingo be successful, and so it was it was really just like heads down, especially the, for the first year or two, minimizing distractions, just like go build the business, develop the right rhythms in terms of growth, and and a lot of people get that. There, there's a lot of folks that are that are rooting for us that are just seeing those examples of companies that can be successful coming out of anywhere, right? Coming out of Pittsburgh, coming out of other parts of the Midwest, coming out of places that are not the traditional places. And so, so there, w- w- one of the ways that we can be most valuable is just b- build that, that example, that role model uh, in Duolingo for other companies to, to emulate. And then the, it, it's certainly not just that, right? Like o- over time, we've become more visible. I've, I've become more visible here in the ecosystem, but, but it is important to, to stay focused for, for us on executing against the opportunity here. Are there, is there a culture of entrepreneurship? Do you think, do you think there are going to be people that branch out from their experience at Duolingo that create new startups or is that happening already? We, we don't want it to happen too soon. So, so, so it's, a, <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it, it's definitely a balance. I mean, for, for us, we, you know, we, we, we actually, one of the really nice things about being in Pittsburgh is the employee retention profile that, that we have. Because one of the things that I really appreciated at Google was just, People would tend to stay for a very long time versus your average startup in Silicon Valley. Just some of them are turning over a quarter of their staff every year. And it's just, it's really hard to make progress when you can't rely on people being in the seat they're in for very long at all. And so for, for us at Duolingo, we've really benefited from really strong employee retention. But over time too, as I mentioned, we hire people who are really young and impressive and we, we get them for the first bunch of years of their career. But we we have a, a we, we really encourage a lot of entrepreneurship in terms of risk taking of new features new 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 products within the company. I I, I mentioned we, we have the culture of like experimentation, but 
at the same time too, we, we also, Luis can't have all the best ideas himself. And, and so we, we, we do have folks that just kind of have these side projects. One, it's a significant part of our business right now is our Duolingo English test that actually started as a hackathon project. And so as, as much as we can plan some of these things out, basically now like our, our second major product started as a hackathon project. And so that just demonstrates a level of entrepreneurship that th th these people are going to go on to other things at some point. We hope it's not too soon, but we, we are bringing a lot of people into the Pittsburgh ecosystem and we're, we're sure that a number of people will, will be here for a while, hopefully many of whom stay at Duolingo for a while, but, but hopefully it also does seed the broader ecosystem here. So what are the advantages that the Pittsburgh ecosystem has in your mind over Silicon Valley? So there are a, a, a number of them. So, and there's challenges too. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, but for on the employee side, it's, there's an amazing amount of talent in Silicon Valley that you can't hold on to it when you get it in many cases. And so for, for us, while it might be harder to initially attract people of a certain profile, once we get them, that is just really, really helpful. So just being able to count on people being in a role. So that, that part around employee retention is, is really good. They're definitely making life work in the Bay Area is, is not easy, right? I, I was kind of fortunate where I actually moved there in 2008. And so it was, everything was a little bit cheaper at, at that time, right? It was, so, so there from kind of a finances numbers, we were able to make it work. I, that's really hard right now. Basic things like traffic and congestion, and it's like, man, it just, it, it becomes hard, right? It, it, it becomes hard to, to live in, in that environment. And we, we like to, to do some, some fun things and some stunts sometimes. We actually are pretty well known for a billboard uh, that we put up in, in Silicon Valley like, a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or as, you know, work in tech, own a home, uh, move to Pittsburgh, right? Just that, that whole piece. I, when I saw that, uh, where is it? Is it along the 101 when you're just coming into the city? Is That's that where right. it was? I just cracked up. I, I just thought that was brilliant. So kudos to whoever came up with that campaign. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was a story that wanted to be told, right? That, that was something where, because the, the amount of earned media that we got from that, right? That was a story that wanted to be told. And they just needed us to, to execute like that. And it kind of took off. It was pretty amazing. That's cool. Why do you think Pittsburgh might be the next fast frontier? I, I think for, for us, it's, it's, it's that foundation that we talked about where Carnegie Mellon is the foundation. I'm, I'm focused on tech, so that's, that's why I'm really focused on, on CMU. And then there too, just building the other, the other steps in terms of all of the big tech companies have, have a presence here that's at least engineering, if not other disciplines. And then it just needs some of the things like Duolingo is providing where just having like the, the full stack company that is headquartered in Pittsburgh that has all of the, the functions that are here and is very much a Pittsburgh company. And they're having that proof point of, we have an ambition to IPO. And if we can do that, just really raising the visibility for what, what, what is possible, right? Where taking nothing away from Silicon Valley or other major markets, they're, they're great, but th there's a lot of really interesting things that are happening in, in a lot of other places, including Pittsburgh. And for, for, for me, when I, when I joined Duolingo and came to Pittsburgh, it, it was for the opportunity. People knew that I was from Pittsburgh and it's like, hey, this is a great thing for your family. And like, don't get me wrong, there's, there's like really great family and lifestyle reasons to be here. But the, the reason my family moved to Pittsburgh was Duolingo and for the opportunity. And that 
that that is a little bit surprising to people where they they're like hey okay if, if you're really serious about building a tech career you just you, you move to silicon valley or like that is the place to be for everybody who's who's serious about doing this and that so, sometimes the best opportunities are other places as a midwest person it's a story that i've been part of and seen others try to craft or like recruit entrepreneurs to the region and it, it always starts with sort of the lifestyle thing and everything else instead of starting with no you can actually have a strategic advantage and yes. be in the technology industry and build a great company here first and foremost right yes and also have a great family and and have a short commute yes. and all things but that's not the driver for a tech entrepreneur like you or others the driver has to be the, the company and the opportunity yes well, thank you very much, Bob, for taking some time. I think this was great. People are really going to enjoy hearing the story. Thank you so much, Tim. Pleasure to do it. Good luck with Duolingo. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Vic Gatto, founder and CEO of Jumpstart Foundry and Jumpstart Health Investors.